Hey everybody, it's Chris. If you're a sports fan like me, or you're just a fan of a great story, you gotta check out Press Box Access, a sports history podcast hosted by Todd Jones. Todd sits down with fellow sports writers who experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past 50 years, and they share some of the stories behind the stories, some of which they've only told to each other. What I personally love are the wild stories that you might not hear so much about on SportsCenter over the years. Like when Indiana-based sports journalist Bob Kravitz recounts the time Bobby Knight showed up naked to an office meeting with him and then banned him from the Hoosiers' locker room for the next three years because Bob wrote a story he didn't like. Or when Alexander Wolfe tells a story about going out on the town in Chicago with Dennis Rodman and Carmen Electra in the middle of a Bulls playoff series. Or when Dan Wetzel talks about what it was like to be in the media room when Temple basketball coach John Chaney stormed into UMass coach John Calipari's press conference after a game and threatened to kill him. These wild and fun stories, paired with stories about real sports greatness, you know, like the 1970s Steelers being the greatest NFL dynasty ever, or the legendary rivalry between Larry Bird and Magic Johnson, and even the impact of protests for social justice issues in sports, make Pressbox Access a show you should check out. Pressbox Access is part of the Evergreen Podcast family, and it's available all the places you get your pods, and you can also find Pressbox Access on YouTube. Go check it out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey. Do you have an idea for a podcast but don't know where to start? Or do you have an already existing podcast that you want to take to the next level? Well, check out WeKnowPodcasting.com. From concept development to theme music to editing to logos, WeKnowPodcasting.com is a one-stop shop for all things pod. Don't hesitate to hit us up. We're very nice. Pogoing to new wave music in clubs is a God-given right, and no one knows this better than Men Without Hats frontman Ivan Doroshuk. He got his revenge on the bouncers that tried to keep his feet on the ground by writing The Safety Dance, a song that truly defined the mood of the early 80s. Was it the infectious melodies and the massive synths that took the song to great heights? Or could it possibly be for another reason that we've lined up in this episode? We're joined by podcaster and musician Ryan Stick, to take a deep dive into Montreal's favorite synth pop act. One hit is all you need To make the money guaranteed And you can live off royalties Forever And it makes me wonder Is it just a wonder Or is it one hit thunder So Ryan 
Ryan, I don't know if you've noticed, but we've had a very Canadian podcast lately. We've talked about Jan Arden. We've talked about Daniel Powder. We had Word Burglar on. And now you're here today to talk about another Canadian artist. I think that we're really trying to bring the Canadians into the one-hit thunder world. So uh, welcome. Thank you, man. Uh, When I was a kid, I I was under the distinct impression that there was like four famous Canadians in the world. And I was wrong. So, you know, please right. continue justifying that, uh, you know, uh, revelation. Right. Yeah. Well, well, today we're here to talk about a very interesting Canadian artist. We're here to talk about Men Without Hats, which I would assume that 99.9% of the people listening right now know Men Without Hats. Whether they realize they do or not realize it, I think everyone knows the safety dance. You, you, it's hard to avoid. I definitely, the first thing I think of is I do believe and Matt, you can correct me if I'm wrong about this. This song's in Billy Madison, right? No, it's Biodome. Biodome. <laughs> there's okay. a sequence of all of them doing the safety dance okay. through the Biodome. <laughs> right. Okay. Okay. I felt like it's also in an Adam Sandler movie. If somebody can back me up on that out there who's listening, let me know. But this song, I, <laughs> I got to get into it real quick here. I was listening to lots of Men Without Hats today in preparation for this episode. And I started to develop a theory in my mind about when this song came out and what was going on in the world. What does this song, Ryan, I want to ask you, what does this song make you think of when you hear it? Conan O'Brien. Okay. Yeah. You said (laughs) said it's the clip. Explain. So when I was a punk-ass kid who just listened to punk-ass music and uh, couldn't get over myself or get out of my own way. Been there. (laughs) And you know when you're in the 90s and you see all these like CDs like, hey, remember the 80s? And I'm like, yeah, when dinosaurs roamed the earth. But I'm like, that was like 12 years ago. Right. So, um, yeah, I was watching Conan O'Brien and there was this funny skit where they used to do this thing where they're like, we have satellites here and we pick up channels that not a lot of people know. And there was some men without hats channel. And my favorite writer performer on Conan O'Brien named Brian Stack, he would do this thing where his wife's like, oh, can you pass the thing? Uh, pass the, uh, the- I don't know, the soda is like, you can drink soda if you want to. You can leave your friends behind. And she's right. like, I, I wanted I want a divorce. He's like, you can divorce if you want to. You can leave your friends behind. And so that melody was like there right away. But later on, just, you know, going out more, going to clubs, not clubs, going to bars. But uh, Men Without Hats is so punk ass in its own way that it's, uh, you know, they would play it to kind of fuck with punk sometimes. And it was great because everybody would just get down anyway because of, it's a, a great song is a great song. One of the things that I kind of picked up today when I was doing research is like, I realized that I know about four words to this song. In my brain, I was like, yeah, they just loop the same like first verse and chorus over and over and over again. There's a lot of lyrics to this song and they're not even that bad of lyrics. No, <laughs> like, cool. Yeah, I think it's cool. <laughs> hey, Ryan, I, before I get into my theory, which ended up being completely correct um, about Men Without Hats and, and specifically this song, is this a situation where you as a Canadian are like, what are you talking about, One Hit Wonders? Or were they also One Hit Wonders in Canada? I didn't even know they're fucking Canadian until like four <laughs> months ago. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Uh, they sound like the most European thing ever, right? Their video feels European. He sings with a bit of an accent, too, in the beginning there. And what's interesting is that I was only familiar with, like, you know, the poser level, like, uh, music video version. But then there's a the long play version that has this intro where he almost talk lyrics it and gets a little zany in it and and that's where that punk element comes in because they're a punk band before they were uh the band they were even the origin of the song is punk as fuck because they were like this song was written because every time a song came on a club that he really liked 
like you know if if it was Blondie or the B-52s he would start pogoing and they'd throw him out of the club so that's essentially what this song was written for and I'm like right. that's so awesome but yeah now had no idea about the Canadian thing and then when I was doing my research there's a song called where the boys are at where, where the boys are that is littered with Montreal landmarks littered like nice. the, the orange julep this big orange dome thing on the side of the highway if you've ever been to Montreal you can't miss it if you're on the Cary Highway and uh yeah the orange julep and it's filled with these French Quebec things called benums which are this like mascot that looks like a little marshmallow man it's it's insane so yes i cannot unsee the canadian in it now now i'm proud i don't know cool yeah that spoken word thing you're talking about which that does happen in a lot of men without hats songs that i've learned that is a very european thing <laughs> that that was done by a lot of the new wave bands and you know this era of bands but that aside do you guys want to hear my theory which proved to be true yes yeah let's hear it so I was listening to the song and I'm like, what does this song make me think of? Like, why? I mean, I got to tell you, I enjoy this song. I've liked this song for a long time. I, I, I like the sound of the music. It sounds very 80s. It just kind of puts you in that mood. But I was like, man, if I was back in 1982, what situation would I be in where I wanted to hear this song? And then I was like, well, I guess if I was in a dance club and there were lights, lots of bright, colorful lights, and then I... I started listening to the song more and I'm like, this song has a very hypnotic sort of steady beat. And I'm like, wait a second. This is the perfect cocaine song. This song, <laughs> this is the most cocaine song I've ever heard. So I did some research and I'll give you guys one guess on when cocaine was at its peak use in both in both the United States and Canada. W- would it possibly be, I don't know, maybe 1982, 1983 range? That would be 1982, when in the United States, <laughs> there were 10.4 million users of cocaine in the United States at that time, and 250,000 in Canada at the time, both at peak cocaine use 1982 and that is also when this song was at its peak so i think my theory was pretty legit (laughs) i want to i want to bounce back to ryan had brought up the the origins of the song kind of being you know anti-bouncers kicking you out of a club for dancing there was actually a really good quote and i remember i remember this show there was a show on vh1 called true spin did either one of you watch this show at all no i don't remember it no it was essentially they would pick this song that had a very ambiguous meaning. And it was like all of the rumored theories of what is this song about? And then they would have different like comedians commentating on the rumored reasons. And then at the end of the episode, the writer of the song would come on and debunk all but one of them and be like, no, this is what the song's actually about. So on that one, the the projections were that it was about getting kicked out of a club, that it was <laughs> about safe sex, and that it was a protest song against nuclear war. And the lead singer had this quote to say about it. Well, first of all, he said the safe sex thing. People are just reading too much into the word safety. But then he said, no, the song is not about nuclear war. But it's because it wasn't just a question of being anti-nuclear. It was a question about us being anti-establishment altogether. <laughs> Which is that little... I think that that's why I think new wave music is so fascinating. Because you have this extremely radio-friendly, poppy music, but it is still coming from the dudes who 
were doing everything in their power to tear down the establishment like just five years earlier in say like New York or DC or or Los Angeles. And they still kind of have that attitude. Like I think of SLC Punk where he says like, I didn't sell out, I bought in. And it's like, it kind of was this whole thing where it's like, well, fuck it. If we make the poppy music, we can still sing whatever the fuck we want because people aren't going to pay attention to the lyrics. They're just going to pay attention to the beat. And you get like, Elvis Costello writing these anti-radio songs as like hit singles and shit. I just think that that era of new wave music from a lyrical standpoint is always fascinating. And I feel like we haven't covered nearly enough of it on this show. Actually, we're very nineties ass show lately. So I'm glad that we're getting a little bit of that eighties new wave back in the game. Yeah, I I definitely agree with, uh, you know, how deep that music can be. And it's always fascinating when you hear, especially like music, that song reached everywhere in the world and yeah. many countries that can't speak a lick of English can still appreciate the vibe it's projecting. But I always found it fascinating when pop music would have brilliant writing and messages hidden within the kind of like, I don't know, candy coated presentation that it was giving everybody. And that, that extra layer is kind of like, you know, like a great blockbuster movie will have those elements inside it, too. It's not just the fluff. They'll have like, you know, those meanings that you'll take home with you, become a better person. Those are the movies and like this, those are the songs that will last forever because, you know, it wasn't just kind of like a a one and done quick disposable presentation. It kind of had that extra element that said, you know, it had some weight to it. Hey, Ryan, I got a question for you Mm. as a guy also who plays live music, play live music. What is your overall thought on bouncers? Do you have a positive or negative outlook on bouncers at clubs? It honestly depends, man. Can I can I tell you guys a fast but funny story about sure. bouncers? Cool. Yeah. I've never yeah, kind of been one to piss the bouncers off, even though a friend of my God, I don't know what she did, but every bouncer she saw, like, I don't know. They just they they were never dancing to the same song, and it never it never went well. But bouncers to me, just being kind of I don't know, a dude who used to wear a lot of makeup and leather pants. Sometimes <laughs> a bouncer was a necessary means for survival based on mm-hmm. where you were. Right. And and um, I remember being in Toronto uh, on tour. We were opening up for a band called Dayglow Abortions, and I was in a essentially kind of a pop punk ish band called rockets away at the time. And I remember like every night, you know, you're playing with the Dayglo abortion. So they attract those punks that just hate everything that has a, you know, has, has a strong sense of melody. They're like, yeah, fuck you. <laughs> so I was kind of on, on edge after a few days. I was, you know, the day, the band themselves, bands are always awesome. It's their fans that ruin everything. So <laughs> we're in this club and uh, this guy, this girl smiles at me and, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a young, clean-shaven boy, and, uh, you know, walk by, and this girl this girl smiles at me, so I, I smile back, but then the guy she was with kind of notices that. He's like, oh, look at this guy, look at this guy, and I'm like, hey, man, j- uh, just leave me alone. He's like, oh, now he says to leave him alone, getting really antagonistic, you know, and I pulled a card that usually works. Unfortunately, this time didn't work out very well. I said, uh, hey, man, listen, uh, I know the security here because I did. I introduced myself to all the security and stuff like that. Good move. Good move. <laughs> if shit ever goes down, be nice to every single person in the club, the sound people, the the, the coat check, everything. The best advice. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no reason to be a piece of shit to anybody ever no. at all. No. So I say, yeah, listen, I know the security and stuff like that. He's like, oh, really, really? Goes off, comes back with one of them arm in arm. He's like, yeah, yeah, I grew up with this guy. And I'm like, oh, shit. (laughs) So uh, then I pulled my other move, which is just like, okay, there's nothing to do now. Be completely honest. I'm like, listen, man, I'm on a Dayglo abortions tour. 
and I am in a pop punk band. Every single day, I get shit from every single, almost every single person I meet. I am sorry that I said that card. I have a lot of respect for you or whatever. You know, just just saying it. I'm like, look, sorry about that. It's been a hard week. I want to, and I shake his hand. I'm just like, let's just let's just put this behind yeah. us. The guy ended up buying me like ten shots, <laughs> and we, we talked all night. And then later on, I found out that that girl, that's her ex boyfriend, and he just got out of prison for beating the shit out of a guy. So it's like, in that moment, I could have been like. Oh God, my masculine energy is being threatened. <laughs> I must show dominance. I'm like, nope, nope, no, nope, no. Nope. End it. <laughs> Humble yourself. Shake hands. <laughs> End this thing. This won't go well. And, and I'm really get some free drinks out of the deal. Yes, yes. So I did a safety. <laughs> I did a safety dance that night. Yeah, for yeah. sure. <laughs> yeah. I would say about bouncers in general is yeah. Everyone's seen the aggressive asshole ones. You know, maybe being a too too rough with the crowd. But I do feel like in my experience at clubs, I've had a lot more positive experiences where it was like people were crowd surfing people or whatever, and they just help the people off and they guide them down the steps so they can go back in the crowd. And I think that's pretty nice. So I, I guess that men without hats had a different experience with bouncers than most of mine. But also I have seen those, you know, rare occur, rare occasions where the bouncers were getting a little rough, so I get it. Maybe things were a little rough in the club where the safety dance was playing or whatever, the B-52s or whatever they were pogoing to at the time. So I get it. I get it. I don't like the establishment either. <laughs> well, like like you said, like cocaine was just flying everywhere back then. So yeah. maybe the bouncers are just like, get out of my club. Could you imagine what the people were like? Could you imagine <laughs> how many fights and people that were just so fired up red-eyed and ready to just like explode i mean i'm sure you could get you could get in the right positive mood listening (laughs) listening to the safety dance and dancing really hard but i don't know i could see that being uh it's not like it's not like everybody's shrooming or something it's like (laughs) it's a club full of patrick bateman's out there (laughs) yeah yeah for sure so you know, I'm not siding with the bouncers here. I'm just saying. It's 1982 and everybody's on coke, so, you know. <laughs> anyway, I give Men Without Hats a lot of credit for doing their own thing. They are so synth-heavy. And, you know, uh, like I said, I have a soft spot for those songs that feature the spoken word parts. Hence why I like the sugar cubes and stuff like that. It's almost like it's a funny trope of the time. Is that yeah. that thing? That's why you love that new Jack swing too. There's always the spoken parts in those. Songs. Love it, love it. <laughs> <laughs> you listen to a lot of their stuff. Did you happen to check out their only other semi-charting hit, "Pop Goes the World"? Oh my God, did I? <laughs> <laughs> about the about the choke on my Lacroix when you asked me that. I will say that I checked it out. It starts with the singer Ivan, I believe is his name. Yep. Yeah. Dancing, smiling, and popping bubbles. <laughs> and I'm like, what <laughs> is this? And then a baby is playing a synthesizer. There is a creepy dancing snowman. There is a woman with a bass who is just dancing with the bass, but not playing it. Not even pretending to play it. She's just dancing with it. And I will note that I watched a lot of Men Without Hats videos today. And that creepy snowman makes an appearance in a lot of them. <laughs> That's the banana I was telling you about, the French Canadian thing. Yeah. Huh. I don't know either. It haunts my dreams, but I'm unfamiliar with it. You know, it's. Uh... <laughs> and it has something to do with being French Canadian? I think so, yeah. Pretty sure. Okay. Yeah. Uh, what about 
There's also the little person dressed like a jester and that woman from the safety dance video. They also make multiple appearances in other men without hats videos. It kind of reminds me of, I don't know if anyone out there uh, is a fan of, they might be giants, but within their music videos, they'd always have this, (laughs) these same things would pop up in their videos like this cutout of this man's head that always popped up in the videos. I don't know if that was an 80s thing or if that was just making the most out of the props you spent money on. So like we got to use these props in like six videos, guys. I don't know what the deal with that was. I think I'm going to say it was an 80s thing because think about even we've we've done like those previous episodes where you even talked about like go west and the guy the guy with his wrench wrench. (laughs) that wrench made an appearance in a lot of music videos. (laughs) I was curious about that one uh, because it did chart uh, it was in a Phoebe Cates movie that I've never heard of called Date with an Angel mm. that did not look very good. But then in 1991, it sounds like dude, they got bit by the Nirvana bug as well. Dude, dude, <laughs> well, I got to get into this. Did either of you guys listen to this album? To the no. 19- I haven't heard the album, but I know like he wanted to do the guitar thing and the label kind of said, look, if you do, if you do this, we're going to give you like half the money for your production is like, fine. Whatever, but I, I want to do it our way. And, you know, it didn't work out, but, you know, at <laughs> least sometimes, sometimes, sometimes you just got to take swings. And Men Without Hats in general was taking a swing because they were a very early band to be doing what they were doing. And a lot of people were probably going, what the fuck, when they were coming together. Yeah. But Pop Goes the World, uh, I, I, I'm a producer of a podcast called The Rockman Power Hour. And uh, Jason Rockman, the host of it, is a diehard Men Without Hats fan. And Pop Goes the World is like that. It's a concept album. And that album really goes into, you know, all the deep stuff you were talking about before. And it's um, it's really cool. It's really cool to see to hear albums like that, you know, with whisper singing. And it sounds like all happy, joyous. But at the same time, they're singing about really heavy stuff but i have not heard the the 90s stuff yet because i kind of like don't want them to leave the 80s if that sounds familiar don't yeah yeah i i i would go even further and say that you don't want to hear this album okay i put it on and and believe me look i came into it being like Mm. hey men without hats is cool like they have their own sound (laughs) they do their own thing nothing but respect for them i mean i didn't necessarily like all the songs but at the same time i'm like this this is cool, you know, but the 1991 album, <laughs> woof. all the synths are gone. Yeah. And I'll tell you what it sounded like to me. This is what I wrote down about what it sounded like. First of all, <laughs> I wrote, it's so, 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 so bad. <laughs> and <laughs> okay. I wrote in big capital letters, why? They do cover I Am The Walrus on it for some reason. But to me, this album, I don't see like, how this is inspired by Nirvana, because what it sounds like to me is a fake band from a teenage show from the 90s. Like, okay. if, there, if there was a band playing at the Max on Saved by the Bell or something, like, it is just not good. It doesn't rock. It's just so average. I don't know, like, if that was inspired by Nirvana, they were <laughs> inspired by the, I don't know what, about Nirvana inspired that, but it's it's just it's not good. I don't know. So <laughs> let me ask this question. I'm trying to think right now, and this is brought on by finishing Pam and Tommy the other day. But like historically, I feel like when you look at the '90s, with very few exceptions, was any band from the '80s 
able to try to change their sound to match what was happening. Case in point, like the Motley Crue Generation Swine album is like borderline unlistenable because it's a bunch of hair metal dudes being like, we're going to be an industrial band now. (laughs) It's like, no, you're not. Yeah, but Generation Swine was my first Motley Crue album. And I bought it because I saw Tommy Lee on SNL when um, Pamela Anderson was hosting. And I'm just like, you know, when I remember the words verbatim, he's on Remember the 80s with Goat Boy. And they're like, he was a drum. So, Tommy Lee, what's going on now? And he's like, oh, yeah, we got a new album called Generation Swine. And I'm like, and I remember his voice and the way he said it. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to check out this Generation Swine. It was the second tape I ever bought. And, you know, music was music because when you're a kid, you're like, well, I, sp- <laughs> I spent I spent allowance on this. It's yeah. it's living. I'm not putting it down. <laughs> so I listened to it a bunch of times. And in hindsight, comparison to any other Motley Crue album, is it pure shit? Yeah. But, but it was necessary <laughs> for my, you know, uh, musical development and finding out about Motley Crue to begin with. So... With that, uh, maybe this Men Without Hats, like, you know, questionable uh, 90s album might have been someone's first Men Without Hats album and kind of necessary for them to discover the old things. I like your positivity, Ryan. You That is a very positive outlook on that. <laughs> and I do think that's really cool. And, and I know that Matt and I have talked about this before. And Ryan, I think it's a good point. In the 90s, that you would spend your money on something. And because you spent money on it, you were giving it a good chance. Like, yeah. if you thought it sucked, it was after you gave it a lot of chances. You know, it wasn't like now where you can listen to five seconds of something and be like, this sucks. I'm, I'm moving on, you know? Hailing from the Garrettscape, welcome one and all to Masters of the Media. In a land of pop culture podcasts, I, filmmaker Garrett Briones, and my quote-unquote co-host Jack Watson look at the why of the stories we love and figure out why they connect with us. The show is all about loving the media you love and appreciating the underappreciated. It's a celebration of storytelling and also two pals making each other laugh at random impressions and the silliest things you can imagine. You can find Masters in the Media on all your favorite podcatchers and right here on the Geekscape Network. We hope to see you all on the Garrettscape. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm not going to lie here. I've become a factor fanatic lately. I'm a busy guy and getting to eat restaurant quality meals that are ready to heat and eat in two minutes has been amazing. Eating better is easy with factors, delicious, ready to eat meals. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You have 35 different options to choose from every week, including calorie smart, protein plus, and keto. And also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. I've been spreading the word to everyone I know, not just here on the podcast, but in person as well. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. You get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. And the math doesn't lie. Factor is less expensive than takeout, plus... Considering every meal is dietitian approved, it's also nutritious and delicious. 
So what are you waiting for? Get started today by heading to factormeals.com slash one hit 50 and use the code one hit 50 to get 50% off. That's code one hit 50. The words one hit and the number 50 that is at factormeals.com slash one hit 50 to get 50% off. What was your biggest, you gave it all the chances in the world and there was just no recovering from it. Oh, that's a good question. Because I know mine, and and we're going to do an episode on it, even though it's an obscure as fuck band from the 90s, but the Space Monkeys. <laughs> the Space Monkeys had a minor hit called Sugarcane that I absolutely loved and like begged for the album, and I got it for Christmas, and I think I kind of liked the opening track, and then the rest was like, I just kept trying to force myself to like it, and like... The Sugarcane song was like this poppy kind of like British hip hop song about drugs. And it was like a a fun, crazy song. And the rest was just like D-level Oasis songs. (laughs) Like these (laughs) six, seven minute like attempting to be arena rock songs. I remember that was that was one of those CDs that I just tried so hard. I was like, I no, I need to love this because I like this one song so much. Yeah, I, and it didn't work for me. I can't remember mine, but one of my best friends uh, named Big Dave, because his name is Dave and he's very big. We were in like eighth grade and he was asking me, where can I bring a CD I don't want anymore? And I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> and it was Kiss Psycho Circus because he really liked the song Psycho Circus but hated the rest of it and I never even bothered listening to the album just based on this review so even at a young age I was affected by reviews and I was affected by the fact that music would be so bad that you wouldn't put up with it and at that point I was just I was just like you know music to me was like an abusive relationship I couldn't get out of I was just like sure yeah I gotta you know they have good qualities. There was a time, and my friends talk about this. I know I've heard my friend Johnny talk about it. I think I've heard my bandmate Steve talk about it. There was a time when you're a kid and CDs were popular where it didn't matter what the CDs were. You just wanted more of them. You know, yep. like I, I want this collection to be as big as possible. And if someone's parents or something were just like didn't care about those CDs and you could add them to your CDs, it's like, oh, that's awesome. To answer your question, Matt, about what was the thing that you you couldn't get past even though you bought it? There were a lot of bands on Lookout Records in the 90s because, oh, I loved Operation Ivy and Green Day, so I, I'm going to love this whole catalog and would buy go to the record store and buy these CDs and just they were unlistenable. They were like garage rock, terrible recordings just because they had that label on the back of the CD. <laughs> I felt like I had to like them. The high fives and bands like that. It was just... So bad. And I tried to like it and couldn't. There is a thing about like brand loyalty. Like for me, it's like I have so many tooth and nail records because like that was my label in high school. And I don't like death metal. Why do I have so many death <laughs> Christian death metal albums? I just bought them because I was at a music festival and tooth and nail had a table and I was going to drop all the money that I brought on CDs at that table. I feel like that's the big one. Oh, I when you I, have that label now. loyalty. Oh my God. I'm so glad you're shitting on that. Cause I finally remember that yeah. now Here I was go. thinking, I was thinking about brand loyalty. I'm like, Oh yeah. What about band loyalty? And I'm like, man, I lived and died by everything Green Day put out when I was growing up. Everything. Besides Beach Boys and Weird Al, which were my first two loves, which would make a lot of sense because I like music with a lot of melody but can make fun of itself. So 
Turns out, it turns out that those two bands uh, really shaped me. Green Day were my band. I was 10 years old. I didn't even know what they looked like. It was like 1994, 95 pre-internet and i saw one magazine picture of them once and that was a year in to even know what they look like so it was all about the music man when insomnia came out and nimrod all those bands but man when 21st century breakdown came out and i was like listening to it like kind of smiling and being like yeah oh this is gonna be great this is gonna be great and just I don't know, man. Everything about American Idiot, the spontaneity, the big, large songs that had five songs in one, it just seemed like more. And clearly, they're like, oh my God, here's this thing. Because Doogie came out and we're on this plateau. And then in Sonic, we're back to our roots. But shit, it didn't sell anything. And Nimrod, we're trying to get it back. We're trying our things. It just seemed like American Idiot was their second explosion. And man, 21st Century Breakdown, It's I think it's produced by Butch Vig. And it's just interesting to me when you take Billy Joe, the greatest pop punk singer of all time, and just litter him with current day trendy vocal effects, watering down the sheer power of what his voice can do. And just these songs that kind of just sounded like we're untouchable now. We don't have to edit ourselves. Let's not think twice. Let's just put this out. What songs are even on that one? I don't fucking know. 21 gets that it's a whole album of I, and I don't hate that album but it's definitely low ranking on yeah. my Green Day ranking albums, but it is a whole album that sounds like it was written to be songs and movie trailers. Yeah, there you go. Fears people are shitting on Green Day saying, "Oh, their songs sound like other ones." But when 21 Guns, I'm like, "Yes, I know it sounds like all the young dudes." And I can't I can't yeah, look yeah. past that. <laughs> and another one, sorry. Uh, now that I'm on the hate trade, I'm like, "Oh shit, they're all coming back to me." <laughs> oh no, we've tainted them. I know, I know. <laughs> uh, Metallica saying anger holy shit I, yeah, could, I couldn't yeah. fucking do it I couldn't fucking yeah. do it I bought it for my friend also Big Dave and uh, for his birthday and I remember bringing it over I seemingly ruined his birthday party by bringing his fucking <laughs> CD over <laughs> because we listened to those first two tracks which are Saint Anger and the other one not frantic, frantic. frantic. and then preceded by Invisible Kid we just all look dead inside and we're like 18 years old this shouldn't have happened oh man yeah that would ruin anyone's birthday I'm sure hey yeah. R- Ryan you touched on something we have to touch on on. Matt's going to love getting into this. Uh, I, I was just about to do the exact same yeah. segue. You take <laughs> okay. it away, Chris. Uh, so we got to talk about the Weird Al parody of the safety dance. Not one of his best. I got to say it's <laughs> one of his worst. It's just he's just naming different TV shows you can watch. I It's not it's not necessarily funny. It's not necessarily clever. Weird. It's a Weird Al miss. Yeah, it's called Brady Bunch. It's called Brady Bunch for some reason. Yeah. Look. I love Weird Al, but they're not all they're not all home runs. No, no, definitely not not that great a one. Did either of you guys check out the reunion album from Men Without Hats, which is called No Hats Beyond This Point from two thousand three? No, I haven't. I'm more familiar with the the last album he put out last year, and then Ivan's putting out another one this year that is kind of like a a spiritual continuation of Pop Goes the World. I, I should okay. mention, sorry guys, I gotta plug this uh, on Rockman Power Hour, an interview with Ivan from Men Without Hats Whoa. as the next guest. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. That's amazing. Minus the 1991 album, we did talk some shit, but whatever. No, no, no. You You're... guys talk some shit. Yeah, I always... right. <laughs> <laughs> How did the 2003 No Hats Beyond This Point hold up? Well, here's what I'll say about it. It's way better than that 1991 thing. <laughs> um, it's it's back to the synth, and and back to what they. We're good at 
One thing I made a note of is it has, so I listened to this song, which I think is the first single from it called In California. It has some of the most obnoxious synth sounds in it. Nothing, not taking anything away from the song, just the sounds they chose were all sounds that if I opened a, a logic session and was experimenting with different sounds on my MIDI controller, I wouldn't even <laughs> last five seconds on that sound. But they used them, and I respect that. I listened to another song from the album called Christina's World, and that has some insane synth sounds too, but I did like that one. And then I was listening to it, and I'm like, what does this remind me of? And then it came to me in like two seconds. I'm like, this reminds me of the Nintendo game Marble Madness. And then I, I, I YouTube Marble Madness and I'm like, oh my God. So then I put Marble Madness on and then I played the song at the same time. I'm like, this is perfect. And I think that Marble Madness and Men Without Hats is the collaboration the world has been waiting for. And if we can make, <laughs> if we can make this happen, I feel like world peace might just break out. I want to talk about the charts real quick, because when I was researching the song, I always want to look at what the charts looked like the week that this peaked at its point. And I would say nine times out of 10, there's always like one or two songs that I'm like, I vaguely remember this, but this wasn't that big of a big of a hit. This is the most stacked top 10 chart that we have ever had. In the history of we one hit fun, it, re- it really is. You you name the song, Ryan and I will take turns. One out of ten. What do you what do you give that song? So so start at number ten. Culture Club. I'll tumble for you. I give that song a six. Which one's that again? I'll tumble bum, bum, for you. Bum, bum. If you don't if you don't know it, you can you can pass. Okay, okay. Yeah. I'm just going to pass just because I don't want to pr- I don't ever want to say, "Oh yeah, that's great" when I don't know what I'm talking about. There's a, there's enough. There, there's enough of that in the world. <laughs> that's definitely that's definitely in an Adam Sandler movie. That might be yes, a Billy. That's in Wedding Singer. Wedding Singer. That pops up in Wedding Singer. Okay. Number 9, Michael Jackson Human Nature. Ooh. At 9 is the right number. I give that song a 9. <laughs> that is that is one of the best MJ songs. Yeah, yeah 9. All right. Okay. Number eight, Bonnie Tyler, Total Eclipse of the Heart. Oh my God, that is a number one. That should be a number one. That's wait, <laughs> you mean like one out of ten? How do you how are you ranking this? One being the worst, ten being the best. I'd give that song a, a solid seven. Uh, I'd give that like a nine, ten. I, I love uh-huh. those Jim Steinman songs. They're just so yeah. they're oh, so the, fucking it, epic. Yeah. He had such a very distinct style. Number seven, Donna Summer, she works hard for the money. It's a solid seven of a song. Working hard for the money. That's one of those songs when it when it comes on, I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? You sing half of it. I'm like, oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'd say like seven, uh, nine, eight. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All, right. All right. Number six, The Police, Every Breath You Take, which, side note, biggest single of the year, 1983, when this was the uh, record, I the mean, charts. it's like a perfect song. I mean, regardless of what I think about it, it's probably a 10 of a song, right? Every Breath You Take? Yeah. You know, it's interesting because, you know, of course, being a kid of that age, the first exposure to what I had was that was Puff Daddy exploiting, yeah. the, <laughs> exploiting the death of his friend for right. a lot of money. <laughs> it's such a beautiful melody. And when even down to the guitar riff, there's just something yeah. like every part of that song takes my breath away, if, yeah. if that uh, makes any sense. Yeah. And I think it says how good the police are as a band too because like I think we could all agree that it's not our favorite police song but it's a great song. The police just had so many for like a band that I think only really put out like 3 or 4 records like just non-stop greatness on their stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um all right. 
So a band we'll never talk about on One Hit Thunder. <laughs> Number five, Billy Joel, tell her about it. Give me all the 80s, Joel. Love that 80s, Joel. Uh, I think Tell Her About It is an eight of a song. So good. I love that 80s, Joel. I'm unaware of this particular composition, but I would pretend to to impress Chris at a party. <laughs> Tell her about it. This says a lot about me, but this is my favorite song on this top 10 oh chart. Number God. four. <laughs> number four, Taco putting on the Ritz. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> I love, I fucking love that cover. I... <laughs> I, I mean, I think that's the worst song of this list. I would give it like a three, but okay. <laughs> Do you I even d- know that one, Ryan? No. I, uh, when you yeah. say those lines, I just think about Frankenstein and young Frankenstein's only vocal performance during the Gene Wilder number. <laughs> it's literally just a synth cover of that song. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> number three, Safety Dance, Men Without Hats. Total jam. Oh, yeah. Total jam. I give that 10 out of 10. There we go. Yeah. Was Chris holding his cards until the Thunder Blunder portion of the show? Yeah, yeah. I, it's total jam. <laughs> uh, number two, Sweet Dreams Are Made of These by the Euphorics. Four. Euphorics? Sorry, <laughs> sorry, said that wrong. Is this a different version of the song that's no, not the Eurythmics? No, I'm just an idiot. This is me. <laughs> no, this is the Earth 7 one where yeah. Annie Lennox is a guitar player that never sings anything. <laughs> Annie, you mean Annie Lemmix from, yeah. from the Euphorics? <laughs> I, if you're talking about the Eurythmics, that's like... The Eurythmics, that's, that's the one I'm talking that's about. Like a, that song's like a nine. That song's fucking amazing. Total banger, nine out of ten for sure. And the number one song on September 9th, 1983, Michael Cimbello went to high school with my uncle with Maniac. He's a maniac, <laughs> maniac on the floor. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's Not- awesome. Another wow. song about dancing. Fun fact about Michael Sabellum, which I believe is something that Ryan and I have in common, wrote two fucking bangers for the 1987 classic Monster Squad. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> wrote the, the Monster Squad rap and Rock Until You Drop. That's the same fucking guy? Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> I never realized that this guy is like my Ken- personal Kenny Loggins. Like, I didn't, yeah. I didn't realize. <laughs> All right. Well, I mean, unless we have anything else to cover i think it's time for the final verdict here did men without hats bring the one hit thunder or are they a one hit blunder we'll let ryan start i think i know what his answer is but uh well i got i gotta say it's just first of all i we never talked about particularly the music video and i just want to say one thing about it that i have tremendous respect for they're choosing to do this is that a it was actually shot in england uh, which is really cool because they're depicting England in the Middle Ages. But also, when you listen to the music, all I can picture when I close my eyes is dark lights, dance clubs, big hair, the rest of it. But this video they depicted in a, you know, kind of like a Pied Piper scenario where he is dancing into a town, and by the time it's finished, everybody everybody's dancing and there's not an electric anything in sight so it's kind of a polar opposite of the of the synthetic music not synthetic music but the music and the synthesizers it it does not look how it sounds and good for them for that because yeah you know i think that's maybe why it stands out because as much as i'm like that doesn't feel like it works but at the same time if we're all talking about a song 40 years later then I guess it did. And I would say that 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 video is probably, someone said, list the top 20, you know, Mm. most iconic videos of the 80s, that video would be in it. And and Ivan is a very, like, handsome European-looking dude. Yeah, he is. So so it's kind of funny because I couldn't decide what he looked like more. Like, he's either about to get turned into a cat by Bette Midler, like in Hocus Pocus, 
or uh, he is one of the bad guys from Die Hard who fell into a DeLorean or something. You know, he still has his long he still has the long hair, but you know, you could tell the guy's a star. But a f- yeah. weird weird fact about it though, his brother was a member of the band at the time, but he's the only actual member of the band to appear in the video. So, don't know what the story is there, but that's uh, you know, an interesting yeah. fact. Yeah. Uh, about the song in general, I think the fact that 40 years later, like, you know, any human being can hear about three seconds of it and know where it's going means that regardless of its chart position and its actual day, its longevity knows no borders and knows no concept of time is really cool. And in my research, I was just having fun looking up all the covers that it did. Like in Glee, this uh, the character that was in a wheelchair had a fantasy where he gets to dance with everybody in this mall. And all of a sudden, this guy who you've never seen stand up all season, all of a sudden, he's rocking and he's a good dancer. And this is the first time you get to see the actor and his skill set in that. And then as soon as the song ends, hard cut to him back in the chair. And it's such a fucking downer. But, you know, it's still this great, great song, a great moment. And Jimmy Kimmel and the Roots were playing that song on all their various instruments. And like I said, the Conan O'Brien thing, it's... I'm a bigger fan of the song's impact on the world than putting on the particular song in general, but I got to give it just based on its ability to change the world. I'm giving it a 10 out of 10, fellas. All right. Thunderous. Mm. Thunderous. What do you think, Matt? So, I I mean, I think when when Ryan first told me that this was his pick, I kind of was like, that'll be fun. Like, (laughs) and I kind of went into it thinking like a topic that we've kind of done a semi-decent job of avoiding all in all like novelty music like i was just like oh okay like this is probably some novelty song there's probably not going to be a whole lot of rich history behind the band after the fact and like finding out like oh they were like a punk band there was like a message they had like a meaning to this song it wasn't just like some weird words thrown on a sheet of paper they're putting out records in 2022 like that that all kind of adds up and then like i said just looking at the lyrics and like i've sung along with this song like i know these lyrics but i think i forgot them so like i actually think it's a pretty well written song like i i think it's just a good happy song about friends getting kicked out of a club <laughs> by a bouncer and i'm okay with that i'm going to give it a thunder nice yeah and i would have to agree with Ryan's point this song has been part of the culture through everything. He referenced the Conan O'Brien skit from like the nineties. It was in, you know, these goofy movies in the nineties and two thousands. It's still relevant. Now people still know it. Um, I do think they had some blunders along the way, but in general they made cool synth music (laughs) and that's what they were best at. I feel like their only blunder is when they went away from that. And I can't, necessarily blame someone for wanting to try new things i just didn't think they were necessarily very good at it and yeah overall this is this is very thunderous yeah i I love it and um i would say that this is one of the best cocaine songs of the 80s Thunder. One Hit Thunder is hosted by Chris Ophalios of the band's Punchline Pack and Another Cheetah and produced by Matt Kelly of Geekscape.net. 
Underneath me, you're hearing O Sierra off of the Punchline album Thrilled. Visit punchline.com for merch, tour dates, and news. Do you want to start a podcast? Then contact Chris and I at weknowpodcasting.com for how we can make your show sound as professional as possible. Do you wish that it was your song being played right now? Then contact me at matt at geekscape.net and we can make that happen. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting app. And tune in next week for another episode of One Hit Thunder. I you more deeply. I want to love you. it is ryan i'm not sure if you know this about me but i'm a bit of a fun fanatic when i can i like to work but i like fun too it's a thing and now the truth is out there i can tell you about my favorite place to have fun chumba casino they have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week you can play for free anytime anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, I'm Daniela Clark. I'm Barbara Ann Wild. And we are The Honest AF Show. Our podcast is real, honest conversation with our celebrity friends and pros. Covering our anything but average rock and roll lifestyles. All while tackling the hell that is aging and the battle of beauty. Oh yeah, nothing is off the table. The Honest AF Show is available wherever you get your podcasts.